0: So um, you can go ahead and turn in your Bible to the book of Nahum, book of Nahum. It will be a little bit before I get there. We're also going to look at the book of Micah. And I want you to imagine a a courtroom scene, and I'm intentionally not going to choose a crime here, but I want you to want want you to imagine that you have been the victim of of some crime, Uh, of of a crime that that had a really um, negative impact. On the life of you and your family, and the the witnesses are brought in and and they testify. You you come up and you give a statement of of impact on how this crime has impacted you, and the uh, the judge listens carefully. He considers, um, weighs the evidence. It's it's very obvious that that the criminal is, is guilty. He's not repentant. He's not sorry. He's defiant. Um, doesn't see anything wrong, any reason to, to repent from his crime. But the, ju- the judge comes up and he says, you know, I'm a man of, of mercy and compassion. And so because of that, I'm going to, I'm going to allow this crime to go unpunished. I'm going to release the criminal, I'm going to release the perpetrator and allow him to go free. Is that good news or bad news? It's, It's terrible. That's, that's terrible. <laughs> that depends who you are, perhaps. Yes. No, that's terrible. This is, this, is, this is not justice, is it? Is that judge a good judge or is he an evil judge? He's an evil judge because he has not withheld, he's not upholded his office. He has not executed justice as he ought to have done. And if, if you are the victim of this crime as you, as you go away, victim of this, of this evil, as you, you go away, there, there's a sense of emptiness of justice not being not being fulfilled. Justice not being served. This is not right. This is not a good judge. This is not how things ought to be. This is not a good judge. And often as we think about God as our judge, we'd like to imagine God is a God of, of mercy and grace, and he is. But we don't like to consider that God is also a God of wrath. God is a God of wrath and God is a God of judgment and a God is a God of, of vengeance. Those are not comfortable ideas. We don't, we don't like to think of those ideas. But again, going back to that courtroom scene, if God were the judge and he were to look at the evil perpetrated and God were to say, I'm just going to let that go, I'm not going to execute justice, then God would not be good. God would not be a good God. He would be miscarrying justice. Judgment and wrath, indeed wrath, is necessary for God to be just. And oftentimes, I think particularly in our context, perhaps where where our enemies are people who park in our parking spaces and things like that, um, we we struggle with this picture of God. This picture of God as as a wrathful God who, who executes vengeance. But in Nahum... God is is pictured as jealous, avenging, wrathful, who will lay waste to his enemies and avenge crimes perpetrated against his people. Sometimes we struggle, is this a good God? But the book of Nahum is saying, no, God is going to execute justice. As you may recall from Pastor Tyler preaching a couple of weeks ago, Jonah actually struggled with the opposite problem. Jonah's struggle wasn't, God, why why are you a God of wrath? His, his, His problem was, God, why are you a God of compassion? Um, this sounds like praise, but it's actually an accusation. And towards the end of the book, Jonah says to God, when God is, has uh, relented of the evil he was going to bring upon Nineveh, he accuses God saying, I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And and God's forgiveness of the Ninevites caused Jonah to be angry, so angry that he wishes that he were dead. But the book of Nahum, written about 140 years after Jonah, perhaps was the book that, that Jonah would have wanted to write. It's also written about the Assyrians. Unlike Jonah, as Pastor Tyler pointed out a couple of weeks ago, um, Jonah is bringing the message to the Assyrians. And by bringing the message to the Assyrians, there's a there's sense that you can repent and turn from this before the calamity comes upon you. But the book of Nahum is written to the Judah, to the people of Judah. This is, Nahum did not travel to Nineveh. He did not travel to Assyria to preach this message. This is, This is a time... With the hourglass of Assyria's time to repent and turn from their sin, it's run out and judgment is coming and God is going to execute justice. Um, Nahum is announcing God's judgment. Assyria's crimes have reached their apex and their judgment is sure. In the Minor Prophets, we see that although God is a God, and it is true, God is a God who is gracious, he is compassionate, he is slow to anger, but he is also a God who does not allow the guilty to go unpunished. He does not. He does not see evil committed. He does not see crimes committed. He does not see injustices perpetrated and allow them to go free. God is a God who brings um, judgment. God is a God of wrath towards evil. He does not allow the guilty to go unpunished or injustice to prevail. Today, we will examine two prophets, Nahum and also Micah, who prophesied of God's judge just judgment of the wicked. One of them, this is Nahum, prophesied against Assyria, who is the world's supreme power of the day. But the other, Micah, prophesied against God's own people, Judah. Because this proclamation of judgment was not only against the world, it was also against God's people. And these prophets tell us of God, who although patient and abounding in loving kindness, is a God of justice, who sees and does not ignore the deeds of the wicked. As we prepare to, to look into God's word, please. Pray with me. Father, as we look at sobering texts this morning, we pray that your spirit will stir our hearts to examine ourselves and, and look for where we need to repent. Father, perhaps there are, there are places where um, we, we, ha- we have pushed to the side. We have ignored that we have committed acts of injustice or that we are idolaters and we worship things that are not God's. We worship things um, and treat them as more valuable and more worthy than you are. Father, bring those things to our hearts. Father, I pray that there are people in this room, and as I'm sure there are, who have um, experienced injustice, who have had um, crimes perpetrated against them or hurts perpetrated against them or evil perpetrated against them. Father, I I pray that you will comfort their hearts knowing that you see, even if if, if the wicked go free in this world, in this life, in the now, that you see and you know and you care and you will not um, withhold what is right and what is just. Father, I pray for comfort in that. Father, I pray for us as we look into your word. I pray that your spirit will lead us. I pray that you will help us to focus our eyes upon your son and remember that our forgiveness is in him, our salvation is in him. We're so grateful for that because, God, we are sinners, and we plead Christ. We pray in his name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. A couple of things about the, the book of Nahum as we... Uh, move in into the book. Uh, it was written between the fall of Israel in 722. Uh, I, I, I agree with Pastor Jay, memorizing tons of dates is not really that exciting and that fun, but in the review section there, he gives three dates. If you knows, know those dates, it really does help you know the Old Testament. So the fall of Israel in 722 and the fall of Judah in 586, and remember, we're going BC, it's going backwards. So 586 happens after 722. Um, the book of Nahum was probably written sometime between 660 and 630. So kind of in the middle of those two big events. And this is a time when Assyria is the feared and dominant power in what we what is now the Middle East. The northern kingdom has already been taken away by Assyria. And Judah is a vassal state in some sense to, to the Assyrians. They pay heavy tribute. They're under the yoke of the Assyrians. Um, the Assyrians are, are feared. Uh, they're scary people. Um, The the Assyrians, just to kind of give you a taste of this, they waged war through fear and brutality. I'm going to give you four quotes from different Assyrian kings. So this is, in their own words, how they waged war. Um, The first one, their men, after after a campaign, their men, young and old, I took as prisoners. Of some, I cut off the feet and hands. Of others, I cut off the noses, ears, and lips. Of the young men's ears, I made a heap, and of the old men's heads, I built a minaret. This is the king of Assyria bragging about the brutality that he had incurred upon upon his conquered peoples. Another one, I destroyed them. I tore down their walls and burned their towers with fire. I caught the survivors and impaled them on stakes in front of their towns. Third, I tore out the tongues of those whose slanderous mouths that utters blasphemies against my god Asher and those who had plotted against me, and I smashed them alive with the statutes of my gods. And the final one, which is about the treatment of a conquered king, the Assyrian um, conqueror says, I pierced his cheeks with a sharp-edged spear. I put a ring in his jaw and placed a dog collar around his neck and made him guard the bar of the east gate of Nineveh. And in kind of summary, he says, I had mercy on him. This is what he calls mercy. Those who were not submissive, I hung on poles around the city. This is these, this is a, a frightening portrait of a people. This is their own re- reporting of what the, they what they did to conquered peoples. And in this day, there was no one to challenge them. Assyria was alone as a world power on the stage in that part of the world. There was nobody to challenge them. They looked invincible. They looked as if there was nobody who who could stop them. They were a brutal and bloodthirsty empire. Later in the book of Nahum, they are pictured as a lion that has killed more than enough for its cubs but continues to kill and amass dead bodies in its cave. The book of Nahum is composed of oracles against Nineveh, Assyria, and Assyria's king. And though at the height of their power, they seemed invincible, Nahum is declaring that in the face of God's judgment, they are powerless. Although they seem invincible in the face of God's judgment, they are powerless. I'm going to read large portions of the book of Nahum. I won't read the whole book. We'll also read portions of the of um, Micah, you can follow along with me. Nahum chapter 1, verse 11 verses. A prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea, and it dries up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all those who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. And this, this next verse isn't going to sound like it fits, but in the, in the logic of Nahum, it really does. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, Nineveh, has come forth one who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans, but the implication is they will come to naught. You're fighting against God, and you will lose. So Nahum reveals this side of God, which we often were uncomfortable with this. it's a gel- He is a jealous and avenging God with wrath, vengeance being poured out on his enemies. Nahum is really preaching a message of comfort. This may not sound like comfort, but for Judah, this is comfort, that he is a refuge to those who trust in him. But for Nineveh, for his enemies, for the wicked... He's an overwhelming flood. And you can picture like a wave of, of water coming. There's nothing you can do to stop it. It's coming and it's, it's overwhelming you. You're, you're powerless in its wake. Although God is a God slow to anger, full of mercy, full of loving kindness, which we saw in the book of Jonah where he has mercy on these people, even mercy on the animals as, as, as God brings out, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God will not leave the guilty unpunished. His patience with the wicked will someday expire. Unlike Jonah, who brings a message of repentance directly to Assyria, Nahum is an announcement of judgment. The end of God's patience with Assyria is as if the hourglass has run out. God's judgment is coming and sure. Continuing on in the book of Nahum, verses 12 through 15, this is what the Lord says, again, about Assyria. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and idols that are in the temples, temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave because you are vile. Look there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news. This proclamation of of Nineveh's destruction and of of judgment coming, Nahum is saying this is good news, the one who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah. Fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. I don't know about you, but when I think of the word good news, especially in the the biblical context, my mind immediately goes to, to the gospel that that Jesus died for our sins, and he rose from the dead, and that we have peace and reconciliation with God through him. But here, this good news, it's Hebrew, it's not the same word as in the the New Testament, but it's the same idea. It's it's, just a gospel. This is a good news, but it's a good news of judgment. It's God, through Nahum, telling his people, good news, I am bringing judgment and justice upon the wicked. God hears the cries of the suffering. God hears the cries of the, of the oppressed and will not turn a blind eye to the suffering of his people or to the injustice that is committed against them. We see this throughout scripture and Exodus and elsewhere that God hears the cries of his people. He is not ignorant. He is not an aloof God who's just out there every just paying attention every once in a while. He knows. He is aware. He is cognizant of what is happening. He has heard the cries of his people. He's bringing destruction to the oppressors. When the wicked escape the justice that they deserve, that is not good news. That is a travesty. But when justice is executed, it is cause for rejoicing because goodness has prevailed. Uh, I won't read most of chapter two, but as the, the book of Name continues, he describes an attacker who is coming, which will be Babylon, um, coming to loot and plunder Assyria. And what she has done to so many others will be done to her. I'm going to continue on in chapter two, verse 11 where now is the lion's den? Throughout Old Testament prophecy, Assyria is frequently pictured as a lion, this terrifying beast. It's the most powerful of all animals. Where is the, the lion's den? The place where they fed their young, where the lion and lioness went, and the cubs with nothing to fear. So Assyria is pictured this lion with his den and its cubs, nothing to be afraid of. They're the king of the, king of the beast's and the lion has killed enough for his cubs and strangled the prey for his mate. He's filling his lairs with the, with the kill and his dens with the prey. He's just pictured as a killer. That fool, his, his caves, his lairs are filled with the bodies of his victims. Um, and he's, he's pictured in peace and prosperity. Um, they feel like they have nothing to fear. But Nahum continues, I am against you. They, they feel like they dwell in peace and security, but God says, I am against you, says the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke. The sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. If you remember in uh, Isaiah chapter 36, Isaiah chapter 36 is a story of Hezekiah and the Assyrians coming, and they, th- th- this would be a frightful scene. They surround the city of Jerusalem, and the messenger comes out, and he begins to mock Hezekiah, and he tells him how he has conquered all these other peoples, and their gods did nothing. Your God will do nothing either. He, he speaks to the people. Hezekiah, very weakly, is, is begging them to speak in Aramaic, not in Hebrew, because he doesn't want the, the people to hear what the messenger is saying and bring fear, and he, he doesn't, of course, he doesn't listen to that, but he tells the people of the city that I will force you to to drink your own urine and eat your own excrement, and he's, he's his announcement of fear, and this is what the Assyrians did. It, it, actually, it's terrible, but from a strategic standpoint, it worked pretty well because people were so terrified of the Assyrians that they often would surrender without fighting because of they were afraid of what the Assyrians would do. And this is, this is the idea that the voice of your messengers that would go from city to city announcing the coming of the, the army, they will be heard no more. They will be silenced. These voices will be put out. Um, lost my spot for a second. Okay, there we are. Um. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will leave you no prayer on the earth. The voice of the messengers will no longer be heard. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The city of blood being Nineveh, the cracks of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords, glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. This is Assyria here, What they, the, the havoc that they've wrecked all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, a prostitute being Assyria, alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitution. They're doing this for a false god, is the idea. Enslave nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. And the same statement is repeated again. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. This den of lions that dwells in peace and security with nothing to fear, God is going to bring fear. God is going to bring destruction. Their time for killing is over. They will have no more prey. Their announcements bring fear and terror, but God here says the voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. Go ahead and move to the last verse of the book of Nahum, chapter 3, verse 19. God says, there is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. Your wound is incurable. You're too far gone, is the idea. And all who hear about you will clap their hands over you. For on whom has your evil not passed continually? This judgment upon Assyria that Nahum is pronouncing, he's saying this is good news. It's not just good news for Judah. It's good news for the whole world. When people hear of the destruction of Nineveh, When people hear of the destruction of the Assyrian Empire, they will clap their hands, they will rejoice, they will cheer, they will be glad, and this is good news for the world because of the evil that you perpetrated throughout all the earth, that people will rejoice. And we might be tempted to think that it's good that God judges other people, but surely... (laughs) <laughs> but surely God does not judge us because after all we are his people and we bear his name and that judgment and punishment and, and, and all these terrible things that happen. That's, that's for those other people. But the, the book of Micah, one of the, the primary themes of the book of Micah is that judgment is also on God's people. The judgment is also on God's people. Micah is, is is really kind of a parallel book to Isaiah. And he brings out two primary sins of sins of idolatry, of worshiping other gods and of injustice. And we're going to see that although there are other nations who come and oppress Israel and Judah, that Israel and Judah are committing injustice and oppressing themselves. They're oppressing their own people. They don't need foreign enemies to come and, and oppress them and persecute them because they're doing it to themselves. And this also is incurring the wrath of God. I'm going to read Micah chapter one, the first seven verses here. The word of the Lord which came to Micah and Morisheth in the day of, of Morisheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom. Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all it contains, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him. The valleys will be split. If you remember, that's very similar to the language used in Nahum when God is coming to judge the Assyrians. But here, God is going to come to judge Judah and Israel in the same sort of language is being used. The mountains will melt under him. The valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down from a steep place. All this is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? It's the very heart of the northern kingdom. It's, Samaria is the rebellion of, of Jacob. What is the high place? High places where you would go and worship false gods. What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? So again, the, the, the place where the God's temple is, the, the center of worship for God is now being likened to a high place, a place of false worship and idolatry. For I will make Samaria a heap of ruins, In the open country, planting places for a vineyard, I will pour her stones down into the valley and will lay bare her foundations. All of her idols will be smashed. All of her earnings will be burned with fire and all of her images I will make desolate. For she collected them from a harlot's earnings and to the earnings of a harlot, they will return. So although Nahum pronounces judgment on those other people, the Assyrians, the evil people, the people that we're afraid of, the people that we want to see judged, Remember that, that Jonah wanted to prevent being, being uh, forgiven. There's also judgment on, on God's own people. Micah deals with God's judgment of his own people. Although we may like the idea of God's judgment of the wicked other people, one of, one of the themes of the Minor Prophets is that judgment begins with the house of God. Judgment begins with the house of God. Moving on in Micah, I'm going to go to, again, I'll skip around a little bit. I don't have time to read all seven chapters. You're probably thankful for that. But Micah chapter two, verses eight through 11. Why is God judging them? Uh, Micah two, eight through 11. Lately, my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass without a care. Like men returning from battle, you drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. Get up, go away, for this is not your resting place, because it is defiled, is ruined beyond all remedy. If a liar deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the profit for this people. They just they just want wine and beer. They don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to hear God's judgment, but judgment is coming. Micah condemns God's people because they have acted like an enemy. They are taking the robes of those who pass by. They are driving women from their homes. They're committing injustice. Um, Syria was condemned for crimes against God's people, but in Micah, they don't need enemies to commit crimes against them. They're doing it to themselves. In Micah, the people of Judah and the leaders of Judah are charged with crimes against their own people. Moving on to chapter 3, Micah is specifically addressing the leaders who are in charge of protecting and executing justice, but instead they're oppressing and committing injustice. Chapter 3, verses 1-4, through Then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice? You who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. I, I think this is metaphorical, but the, the idea, I hope it's metaphorical. The, the idea is that they're the leaders of Judah. They're the people who are charged with protecting the people. They're the people in charge with justice and they're, they're crushing them. They're the ones who are oppressing the people the people that you would go to to say, I, I, I have had crimes committed against me. I've had injustice committed against me. Those who are in charge of, of executing justice are the ones executing injustice themselves. There's nowhere to go to for those who are being oppressed. And God is calling them to account. Moving on, chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. So hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel who despise justice and distort All that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her people tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, is not the Lord among us? No, disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, and the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets." Why would God send disaster on his own people? This is something that many many people in the Old Testament struggled with. Why would God send disaster on his own people? The people who bear his name. It's one of the appeals of Moses. We bear your name. Have mercy on us. Although God's faithfulness to his covenants is irreversible, and this is a theme we see throughout Scripture. When God makes promises, when God makes covenants, he keeps those covenants. He keeps those covenants regardless of whether his people keep the covenants. God is a God who is faithful to his promises. He is good. He is long-suffering. He is faithful. However, God's holiness, God's holiness and God's justice demand that he not allow his name to be associated with injustice. It demands that God not allow his name to be associated with idolatry. There is a major difference, and I I do think it's important to point this out. There is a major difference, though, between the judgment on Assyria and and the judgment on Judah and Israel. Throughout the book of Micah, we see something that we, we don't see in Nahum, that God offers hope of reconciliation, that God offers hope of future salvation. There's a promise of a coming Messiah who will deliver his people, and the book ends with a promise of faithfulness and forgiveness. And I'm not going to read all the themes of, of, um, of a, a Messiah and forgiveness and reconciliation, but I just want to read the last three verses of the book of Micah, Micah chapter 7, 18 through 20 ends on this hope. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities to the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in ages long ago. So with God's people here, we we see that although God is going to bring judgment on them, that God is also going to save them. He's going to deliver them. This is the difference between how God judges his people and how God judges those who are not his people. Although God does, does judge his people along with the wicked, he doesn't judge them like he judges the wicked. He never forsakes or abandons them. The judgment of God announced by Mike includes promise of a coming king. And future salvation of his people. I want to take a couple moments to, to, to think about judgment and the character of God. Judgment is one of those themes that we often don't like to think about, but it's a, it's, a, it's a dominant theme in scripture. It's not just one or two passages here and there that talk about judgment. One of the reasons that people avoid the minor prophets and avoid the prophets in general is it's so down and depressing. I remember trying to read through Jeremiah, for instance, in one sitting, getting okay, so discouraged, this is so down. Why is this such a dominant theme in Scripture? Well, the really, the announcement, maybe you don't think about it this way, but the announcement of judgment is good news. It doesn't sound like good news to many of us, but perhaps you do hear it this way. It is good news. It means that God is just and good. If there is no judgment coming, if those who get away with their crimes and their wickedness and their life get away with it forever, That's bad news. So the announcement of judgment is good news. It means that God is good. It means that God is just. He does not ignore the sins of the wicked, nor is he indifferent to the injustice perpetrated by evil people. God tells us not to take vengeance. But that does not mean that vengeance is not coming. The reason we're not to take vengeance is what? Because vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. It's not that God says, I'm just going to allow the evil of evil people to go. I'm not not going to wink at evil and shrug my shoulders at wickedness. No, God really is going to bring vengeance. Some some of us, I really should say all of us in this room, at some time or another have been victims of injustice, whether it's a small, little, insignificant matter, or maybe it's it's a rather large um, case of injustice. Maybe there's something that you're still struggling with, today. Maybe you've been, ex- been the victim of extreme, severe injust- injustice. God tells us not to seek revenge. And as Christians, we're to seek peace. We're to seek reconciliation. For us, revenge and retribution is inappropriate. It is out of bounds because that's God's job. That's God's job. But God does not say that vengeance and retribution will not come. It will. There is coming a day. Of vengeance and retribution and many of us are uncomfortable with this but this truth about God is necessary for God to be good necessary for God to be just he most emphatically does not overlook the crimes of wicked people he sees he takes an account and someday he will judge there is no crime committed against you to which God will turn a blind eye there is no crime that God shrugs his shoulders and says I'm just gonna let that go there is no crime for which there will not be just payment, whether small or little. And if you know the gospel, you know that's either payment that's taken by Christ on the cross for us, or it's in the payment that somebody pays themselves for eternity. But this is good news. God sees the wrongs and hurts that you have suffered, and he cares. He is angry. In this life, we seek justice, but too often the wicked prosper, the righteous suffer. It will not always be so. It will not always be so. God will put all to rights in the end, and the wicked will be called to an account. But just judgment is not just for the world. Israel in the Old Testament was called to be a nation of priests. A priest is somebody who represents God to others. Israel is to be a nation of those who represents who God is to everybody around them. And when Israel failed to live up to this calling, they incurred judgment. Because of the people who bear his name and are called to rep- represent God to their na- the nations, their sin misrepresents the character of God and is a disgrace to his name and his reputation. That's not just the Old Testament. First Peter says that the church is, is a royal priesthood, that we too are a nation of priests in this sense. The Great Commission is really a, a calling for us to represent God to those who do not know him, that we're called to go to those who do not know who God is, who do not know the truth, of Christ's death and resurrection, preach the good news to him. That's a priestly calling that's representing God to the nations, calling on people to repent and being reconciled to God. We have been called to preach the gospel to all nations and make Christ known. We are called by his name. His name must be holy. Imagine an an ambassador who represents a country, and he lives a life um, full of debauchery, and he commits crimes, and he commits injustice. The, the, the nation that, re, that he represents must judge him, or the way that he acts and the way that he lives reflects on, on the nation that he represents, doesn't it? And that's really the same idea here, that God's people, Israel, here in the Old Testament, they're called to represent God, they're called to be a nation of priests, but they're committing idolatry, they're committing injustice, and they're falsely representing God. They're mischaracterizing God. They're saying things about God that are not true. And because of that, they are called to repent. Although I, I do not believe that as, as believers that we, we, we will experience hell. I do not believe that we can lose our salvation. I do not believe that God um, kicks us out of the kingdom if we're truly his child. But that does not mean that God will not judge. Judgment is not just something that happens at the end of time either. Judgment happens in space and time. In Revelation chapter 2, John records Jesus' message to the church of Ephesus. And I won't read the whole thing, but the first few chapters of of Revelation is is these several letters to these seven churches. Um, He tells them things that they're doing well and they're doing poorly. This is written to the first church, the church of Ephesus. Jesus, the one speaking here, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. And if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That This lampstand is this picture of this church being a light to the nations representing God. And God says, If you do not repent and represent me rightly, I will remove your lampstand. This isn't just eternity. This is in time and space. The, the, The punishments against Micah and Nahum here, are not just punishments on the, in the last day, although there's still, obviously, there is just, judgment and justice coming on the last day. It's judgment in time and space. In the light of the church at Ephesus, their light can be put, off, put out. Nahum is pro- proclaiming to Assyria that you will be conquered, and Micah is proclaiming to Judah that you will be, you will also be punished for misrepresenting me. Moving into the section that Entitled Responding to God's Judgment. Although we tend to think of judgment and repentance of being a matter between individuals and God, I think when we, we consider what's going on in, in both of these books, the call to repentance and judgment here uh, and, and proclamation of judgment here is corporate, meaning this is, this is for groups of people. There were many righteous people in Israel and Judah. I think of the prophet Daniel who the Babylonians came and they took him away. And he, he, was, he would experience the judgment of God on the people of, of Judah, even though he was righteous. This isn't just calling God, the individuals to account. This is calling groups of people to account. God does call individuals to account, but he also calls nations and families and peoples and churches to account. I'm, I'm not aware, don't hear this the wrong way, I'm not aware of any great abiding deep sin at sunset bible church but but if sunset bible church misrepresented god by the way that we conducted ourselves by the way that we spoke about him by the way we represented him god could take our lampstand away he could If the church in the United States misrepresents God, they say things about God that are not true by the way that they live, by the way that they speak, by the way that they carry themselves, then God can bring the church in the United States to judgment. God can bring nations to judgment. So how has God called us to repentance? I think it's important for us to think how has God called me as an individual to repentance, but how has God called your your family, your church, your nation, your groups, to repentance. How have we rep- misrepresented him? As God's people, I don't think we need to fear damnation. But if we bear his name, we bear the responsibility of representing his character rightly. The, the two great sins in the book of Micah, I, I don't think are irrelevant for us. Uh, idolatry and injustice. We, we tend to think of idols as, as being something of the past. Really, the big difference between idolatry in the, in the Old Testament idolatry now is that they had names and, and and figures, and characters that represented their gods. Today, we're probably less aware of it. But money, which the greed, um, Paul calls idolatry, the love of money, um, sexuality, all these kinds of sins, they can be gods. The desire for power, perhaps that's a serious great evil. That can be a god. We desire power. We desire something that more than we desire God, we have disordered loves, we have disordered affections. So again, though we do not need fear God's damnation of, uh, of us, we don't need to fear that God is going to send us into hell forever, God could remove our lampstand, whether that be our church, or the church in the United States, or our nation, if we misrepresent who God is. Committing injustice is misrepresenting who God is. God is a God of justice. God is a God of love and compassion. God is a God of goodness. God is a God of justice. And when we act unjustly, when we do not represent God rightly, then we are preaching falsely about who God is. And although the judgment of God sometimes seems slow, there is coming a day when God's patience will run out. The announcement of God's judgment on the wicked should bring us to to sober self-reflection and assessment. There are several limits. One, One limit is death. We don't like to think of death, but all of us are, are going to die someday. And when we die, the time for repentance is over. It's run out. Hourglasses has run. And again, judgment is not just eternal judgment. It's not just the judgment in the last day that God does act in time and space. I think it's a mistake for us to try to look at events in people's lives, our own lives, or, or national Events and, and try to say, This is God judging this. And obviously, remember the book of Job that sometimes suffering happens. We don't know the reason why. But all of these judgments we've talked about today are judgments in time and space. And I don't think that's just in the past. I think God still can and does judge us in time and space. And when God's judgment comes, it's, it's too late to repent and, and, and um, avoid God's judgment. And then finally, there's eternal judgment. And there will come a day when all will be held to account. And finally, the announcement of God's judgment should bring us to he who took our sin. I think it would be a mistake not to, not to hear this sober and, and really scary message without turning to the cross. Isaiah 53 talks about him who, who bore our sins and our suffering. When we repent from our sin, forgiveness and reconciliation are available through Christ. And this should cause us to rejoice. All sin is paid for. All sin is paid for. Either you pay for it yourself, or you can rejoice that Christ paid for your sin. But all sin is paid for. And when we remember that our sin is paid for, that should drive us to worship and rejoicing in the cross and resurrection of Christ our Savior. Please pray with me. Father, this is a sobering message from the books of Nahum and, and Micah. We don't like to think of of wrath and and judgment coming from you. But, Father, we know that you are just. And we know that you do not forget the the evils committed by evil people who are not repentant. Father, I pray that your spirit will help us to examine our own hearts as individuals and as as groups of people. Father, I pray for us as a church that you will keep us from sin. You will keep us from pride, from idolatry, from injustice. Help us to keep our eyes focused on you and we thank you so much that you sent your son to die for our sin, that we do not have to pay for our sin, that your son paid for our sin on the cross and we thank you that you raised him from the dead and that you raise us from the dead and that we have eternal life through him. We pray these things in your son's name, through your spirit.